You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. We're continuing our series here in the book of, am I on? Am I on now? Y'all can hear me? Great. Continuing our series uh, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you uh, to open your Bibles up to there. If you don't have your Bibles with you, we have some right in front of you uh, in the pew backs in front of you. And we just want to, I want to ask you guys to just keep it open to there. So you can make sure that what I'm saying from this pulpit is what Paul is saying from this letter. Um, And for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Rob. I'm one of the elders here on staff at Renaissance Church, and we are just so glad that you're here with us this morning. So less of me talking right now and more of the Word of God being read. So here we are, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Would you follow along with me? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of, for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. My family in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. So now we're moving into what is commonly labeled as the third chapter. That it, it, It's a letter to a group of Christians that are in the port city of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea, if you're familiar with your geography. But when they first got this letter, there would have been no chapter headings. There would have been no verse numbers. They would just have this letter read to them in its entirety, similar to a gathering like this, but even smaller, probably in a house church. And what they've already read is this dramatic and climatic story of God's salvation that they are now entered into all because of Jesus. The Father predestined them. The Son has uh, redeemed them. The Spirit now has sealed them to make them now one. The two groups that were once divided are now one in Christ Jesus. And Paul even prays that the eyes of their heart would be open so they might see, might see that what is true of Jesus 
is true of us, that when he's seated in the heavenly places, we are seated in the heavenly places with him, that when we are, he is raised from the dead, we have been spiritually raised from the dead. So they're united in this good news, but it's not just the good news that they're united in. They also have common agreement in the bad news as well. They agreed in their common previous condition. They were once dead in their trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And he says, but now you Gentiles, you once had the status of double alienation. You are alienated from your creator and you're alienated from God's people. But that's not the truest thing about you. It's not that you were are now double alienated people. You are now double reconciled people. You are now reconciled to God through the blood of Christ and reconciled to a group of people who don't look like you, act like you, talk like you, eat like you. You're now reconciled to them because of Christ. This is what they've read so far. And finally, finally, Paul is now telling them After all this glorious news about what Jesus has done for them, he's now finally getting to himself. I mean, isn't that refreshing to meet someone who's not all that interested in himself? Isn't it refreshing to sit across the table, whether you're listening to someone or reading a letter from someone, where just for several minutes they just forget about themselves? I mean, have you ever wondered what makes someone so other-oriented like the Apostle Paul has been up to this point? I mean, are you you like me who desires to be that type of person who just not just thinks less of myself, but thinks about myself less often? Anybody desire that? See, how would a guy who is under house arrest in Rome like Paul Be so other-oriented. Let me give you the answer up front. It's this. Paul's focus on Christ leads to the service of others. Simple, but profound. His soul focused on Christ leads to his service towards others. Or put it a different way, you can see in Paul's sacrificial life, his service towards the church, it reveals how focused he is on Jesus, which means this, my posture, your posture towards how we serve one another reveals how focused we actually are on Christ or ourselves. You with me? What are we focused on? We're going to observe this through two points this morning. We'll recall, first point, you have it in front of you if you got the bulletin, Paul's current condition. First point. And second, we will see Paul's mysterious revelation. We have his current condition and this mysterious revelation. And so if you're with me, let's dive in to this first point, Paul's current condition. I want you to imagine, put yourself back in the first century in this port city in Ephesus. You're sitting in a hot room. And you're like, Paul, we get it. 
Unity matters. You're saying it again and again. We got it. Would you just tell us how you're doing? Like, we want to hear how you're doing since you left us to go to Jerusalem. We knew trouble awaited you there. And so he gets to himself. He says, for this reason. Let me pause right there. That for this reason. He has this little interruption here. And that he won't actually get to his topic until verse 14. So we're going to save that for this reason until we get to verse 14. But he says, Paul, I, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul turns away from the church for just a brief moment and tells about himself. Kind of. He says, I'm a prisoner for your benefit. Do you see that? But don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. I mean, what led to his arrest in Jerusalem? What got him all these successive trials that put him on trial in Rome and now in jail? I'll tell you what. It was fanatical Jewish oppression because they hated his message to the nations. Paul, if you remember, in Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles, as he's giving his defense before these religious elites, he recalls his story when he met Jesus. But he also recalls what happened when he was in the temple praying to Jesus, and Jesus speaks these words to him in Acts 22. And he said, that's Jesus, said to me, Paul, go for I will send you far away to the, can you say this with me? Gentiles. Up to this word, they, that is the religious leaders, listened to him. They raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The religious elites hated Paul. Not because Paul was a jerk. Not because Paul hated them. But because Paul preached that Christ accepted all people of all races, of all tongues, in all places. He preached that all people everywhere now have equal access to Israel's God. Not by what they do, not because of who they are, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Now they are all one in Christ, and the religious elites hate it. This is why he's suffering. When he says, this was the message of grace I'm a steward of in verse 2. Do you see that language? See, when you're a steward of God's grace, you'll also be a steward of suffering when you preach grace. Hear me. When you are a steward of this message of grace, you will also be a steward of of the suffering that comes along when you preach grace. This is why he's suffering. But he says, don't worry. It's for your sake. I'm doing this for you, Gentiles, the nations. On one hand, it's just, it's striking, just remarkable that Paul is just now telling his part of the story, his condition. 
He's so concerned for this little house church in Ephesus. He wants them to know, to see with their heart, the riches of God's promises that it takes him 762 words in the Greek to finally talk about himself. He is so focused on this heavenly reality that leads him to focus on others. I wonder, have you guys ever heard the critique that, man, Christians are just so heavenly-minded that they do no earthly good. Anybody hear that critique before? You're so focused on heaven that you do no good for this world. It even made its way into a Johnny Cash tune called No Earthly Good. He sings, you're shining your light, you shine it, you should. But you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. But I just have to ask, is that critique Fair. Is it even warranted? C.S. Lewis asks the same question and gives the answer to it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. And he goes on to say that if you take an honest look over church history, you'll find the Christians who did the most good for others were the ones who were so focused on Christ. He says the apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all their le- left their mark on the earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that is the new heavens and new earth that are coming, that they've become so ineffective in this. But he says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So what Lewis is saying, and what I'm saying, and what Paul is saying by his life, is that when your gaze is so fixed on Christ, you can't help to be oriented towards the good of others. Even when he's talking about his condition, what does he say? I'm here for your benefit. He can't even bear to talk about himself. I'm here so that benefits not just you, but all nations. That through the blood of Christ, all nations can be reconciled to one another and to God and become one new man in Christ Jesus. Paul saying, I'm willing to risk everything. I'm willing to risk imprisonment. I'm willing to risk being canceled by my nation, canceled by my fellow Jews for the sake for people who were once my enemies. Am I willing? Are we willing? Are we willing to put ourselves even in the same condition that Paul found himself in? This was his condition. And why did he find himself there? It's because of, second point, this mysterious 
revelation. Y'all remember the game Clue? A couple head nods. I loved playing that game. It's a game where you had to solve this mystery, and as the game went on, more clues were given to figure out who did it, where it happened in the mansion, and with what weapon. For some odd reason, it always happened to be, be the professor, right? In the kitchen with the candelabra. Or some of you love playing those murder mystery. You guys all have those murder mystery parties, right? I know about them, but I never get invited to them. <laughs> Just saying. But this is how we think about the word mystery, right? It appears several times in this passage. Mystery for us in the English language is something that uh, is a dark secret, something that doesn't want to be found out, something that is hidden or maybe puzzling. It's a mystery. But this is not how the Greek word mysterion is used. When Paul says in verse 3, I've written to you briefly about this mystery, This could have either been in another letter that he's written to them that we don't have, or it could be referring to chapter 1, verse 9, where he briefly said a little word about the mystery of God's will. But let's not get caught up on what he wrote briefly about. Let's get caught up on this word mystery. Look how he uses it. What does he say? That's been made known. It's a mystery that's been made known. Mystery in the Bible is not this weird Christianese, like, oh, just chalk it up to the mystery of God. No, 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 no. Mystery always in the Bible refers to something that has now been revealed, not hidden. He says in verse 4, when you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul wants to spell this out for you in verse 4 so that you can perceive, that is, understand his insight. See, Paul was not going to hoard this information for himself. There was not this secret society or holy apostolic club that only got to know the mysteries of Christ. No, he's saying this has been revealed not just to me but to all of the apostles and the prophets. It's been made known to us so that we can make it known to you, the church, so that the church can now make it known to their neighbors. It was made known to be made known. Paul is saying, yeah, it's made known now. But verse 5, it wasn't revealed. It wasn't made known in previous generations. And, And you might say, but Pastor Rob, you just explained to us that the promise of Abraham was to bless all nations. Is that right? Yeah, great, great job listening. That is right. It is for all nations. Or you might say, I thought you've told us that the Messiah was expected from all the prophets. Yeah, he was. 
So then what, was reve- what wasn't revealed that has now been made known to Christ? What was hidden for generations? Let me stay close to my notes here. It was that the unified Gentile and Jewish church is now replacing the nation of Israel. You with me? See, what the Old Testament never revealed was the radical nature of God's plan. They thought their theocracy, say theocracy, that is a nation that is ruled by the civil codes of God, was going to overpower all other nations through the Messiah. They thought their nation was going to require all other nations to submit to them. And Paul's like, no. No, in Christ, it's not one nation versus the other. It's now the church who is now this international community that shows off the glories and the grace of God. It's not one nation over another. It's Christ who has united all nations by his blood that now the church filled with non-Jews and Jews reveals this mystery. This mystery is now revealed, verse 6. All nations now share in every promise that was promised to Israel. They share in every privilege that was privileged to Israel. No longer did you need to become a citizen of a nation. Why? Because through Christ, we are all citizens of the same kingdom. No longer did you have to be born into a Jewish family in order to come to God. But now you are adopted as sons by the blood of Christ through our truer and better brother Jesus. Now we have one father who has adopted us, not by what we do, but solely because of what his son has done. And now... We no longer need to make a pilgrimage to a temple to worship God. For we now are all a living temple filled with the Spirit of God. This is the church. This is the mystery now revealed. It's been made known to us so that we can make it known both in the words and ways of Jesus and how we live. Let me give you a little illustration, a little story of one of our members who watches this happen all the time. One of our members, Celia, she works over at uh, the women's hospital, McGee. And all y'all love having babies. So all of her coworkers get to meet this church all the time. And some of you even started a residency uh, over there where they get to see fellow members with her. And their response is, they're just dumbfounded. They're like, you let those type of people come into that church? You just let anybody in, don't you? And Celia's simple response is, yeah, we're all one in Christ. It's showing off the mystery of God. It's showing off our unity because what they are seeing outwardly is that Celia looks nothing like the people that she is one with. But there is some similarities. They're showing off the love of Jesus 
that they just can't explain. This is what Paul is saying here. This mystery now made known is to be made known through the church. You see, if the church is simply just a resource for you, a habit, a spiritual pick-me-up, or a duty, a way to impress, maybe for you it's a difficult slog to get here this morning, you're revealing that this mystery is actually about you and what you get out of it. But if the church is the mystery revealed where all people are welcomed because of Christ's blood, then the church is the place where we see an end to division. A breakdown to hostility. The church is the temple that lasts. The church is the place that God dwells. It means then it's no longer about me. It's about we. It's not about you individually. It's about us collectively. Paul makes this unmistakably clear that the reconciliation and integration of God's people into one family wasn't this novel idea, nor was it plan B. It has always been plan A. From Genesis to Revelation, from nation to nation, from all generation to generation, city to city, heart to heart, it has always been God's plan to have one big, united, messy, diverse family to delight in forever. It's called the church. It's a people sealed with his promise, filled with his presence, who exist for his praise. That's the church. This means it's no longer about our will, but God's will. This means you'll never find a Christian saying, what about me? Or do we find Christians saying, what about me? Paul would never say, what about my needs? What about my comfort? What about my convenience? Let me put this before you. It is impossible Impossible to experience the love of God and not be loving towards others. Impossible. Paul loved God so much. No, no, let me me rephrase that. He knew God loved him so much that he couldn't help but sharing that love with others. So much so that he would risk his life, risk being forgotten about by his country, risk being rejected by his fellow Pharisees because he was so enthralled by the love of God found in Christ Jesus. And this is the only place where he writes about this. But in Philippians 3, he says, But whatever gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, where did Paul learn to lay it all down? Where did he learn to lay it all down so that others might know Christ? It's Christ. He learned it from Jesus. Which is why he tells 
the church in Ephesus later in chapter 5, these words. Therefore, that is in light of all this good news that I've told you, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's telling us to walk as a sacrifice. Sacrifices usually die. (laughs) How's something that dies supposed to walk? I think what Paul is saying here is that when you walk in love, you're willing to die to self. That in order to have unity within the church and to make this gospel known, it means dying to our pride, dying to our preferences, and dying to our persuasions. Paul knows. He doesn't just tell the church and do something else. He knows that this type of life hurts. But it's worth it. There's some of you in here this morning right now who want to experience Christ all the more. And I'm just going to put this out there. Maybe one of the reasons you're not experiencing Christ, you know him, but you might not be experiencing him right now in this walk with him, is because you're not willing to walk in dying to self. You want to know Christ? Die to self, to love others. Paul says he gains Christ when he loses temporary loves. Gives it up. You see, the way you sacrifice for others, hear me on this, reveals the way you think Jesus sacrificed for you. Did he give some of his love? Some of his life? All of it. Does your love for others reveal this mystery? Does your love for others reveal that Christ did not just come for people like you, but people who are not like you? When the people of Jesus know, they see with their hearts the words of Jesus and the ways of Jesus, you know whose life they begin to resemble all the more? Jesus. Yes, that includes joys. It also includes suffering. I just want to know, church, where are we? Where am I? Where are you? Still unwilling to lay down your prideful preferences to welcome others in. Like Paul, who was a Jew, wanted to welcome Gentiles in. And this is not just current members of Renaissance Church. Paul's talking about people who don't know Jesus yet. Where are you not willing to lay down your life so that others might know Jesus? Your neighbors, coworkers, your classmates. What is that one thing? 
I'm going to give you a couple seconds to think about it. What is that one thing that I'm not going to give up? Could be your reputation. Could be a job. Could be your comfort. What is that one thing you're not willing to set aside so that others might experience Christ through you? So maybe you're not saying, yeah, 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 I'll I'll go to physical jail, but I'm not going to social jail. (laughs) I'm not going to relational imprisonment where others will reject me on my block or in my class. And what that really is showing off is this other flip to how we live this mystery of Christ where we require others to sacrifice in order for them to be welcomed in. But this is just the way of the world. See, in all other sectors of our city, of our culture, you have to sacrifice in order to be accepted, sacrifice in order to get in. You have to give it up whether that's in a dating relationship. You have to give up some of your preferences in order to take a job. You have to work to get into it. Some of you college students, you have to give up money, loans for ages to get in. If you want to be welcomed within a certain political persuasion, You have to give everything up in order to be welcomed in. And if you disagree with one thing, then you're left out. The world says relationships are built on transactions. It's going to cost you. But the church is the only place where it says it doesn't cost you anything to belong. But instead... We're willing to lay down everything so that you know that you belong, so that you know that you are welcomed here. That you're not welcomed here based on your performance. You're not welcomed here based on these thin transactions, but instead you're going to find a community who's going to leave everything behind themselves to come to you to let you know you are welcomed here. This is what Paul did. Follow his journey in the book of Acts. He left everything to go to those who were other than him. Go to those who were different than him. Go to those, may I even say, who were difficult. See, for Paul, no one was too far gone. No one was too other or different. No one was too difficult. Why? Where did he learn this? What gave him this deep motivation, this deep emotional conviction? It's because he saw God in Christ Jesus was willing to lay everything down to come after one who is so completely different, so completely difficult, a murderer and persecutor of the church, the Apostle Paul. Paul knows that if Christ Jesus was willing to lay down everything 
so that he, the least of the apostles, the chief of all sinners, might know him and might save him, then he knows that he can save anybody. He can redeem anyone because God in Christ Jesus, he was so focused on God's will. And what was God's will? He was born in order to die for those who were utterly different than Jesus. Jesus was holy. We were unholy. Jesus was sinless. We are sinful. He was willing to lose it all to welcome you in. He was rejected by his own because he came to love you. He was canceled by his own community because he came to welcome you. The very people he came from and the very people who came for hated him. But that didn't stop him. See, before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew that he was going to give up his previous condition, his comfort, his convenience with access to the Father and the Spirit, the triune God. Because he did not count his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. He did not count his privilege as the second person of the triune God, something to be used for his own advantage. But he laid it all down for your advantage, to privilege you, to welcome you in, to clear full access to God. How? By his blood. By his blood, he went to the cross in our shame. He was hung naked and ashamed on that cross, not filled with shame because he's identifying with us who are so different and difficult to be around. No, he's filled with our pride-filled shame that we've rejected others with. He was covered in our pride-filled sin where we required others to work to get into our presence. And all of that was laid on him on the cross of Christ. Why? So those things would no longer be true of you anymore, but would be true of him as he hangs from that cross. And now, when you put your faith and your trust in him, what was true of you is now true of Jesus. But what's true of Jesus, the one who perfectly welcomes others in, the one who perfectly accepts others, is now true of you. That's how God sees you right now if your faith is in Jesus. Not as someone who's trying to play catch-up and welcoming others in, but someone who's seen as perfectly righteous, all because of what Jesus has done. You know what happens to a person who experiences this type of love? who doesn't just know it up here, but knows it at the gut level. You know what happens? They want to make it known. They want to let it no longer be a mystery that's hidden, but a mystery revealed. That if God can welcome in someone like me, oh, then he can welcome in anybody. Oh, let us be a church who is so focused on Jesus that we would welcome anyone in who Jesus would welcome in. It's the worst and the least of these. Let us be a church who's so focused on Christ that we're saying, yes, it's worth it 
to face any type of imprisonment, literal imprisonment, social imprisonment, familial, relational imprisonment. I'm willing to lose it all if it means gaining a new brother and sister in Christ. Oh, let us be a church who doesn't just know the words and the ways of Jesus, but lives the words and the ways of Jesus. So when others look at us, they'll be confounded by our love for one another and love for them. They'll be confused by it. And as the world watches us where distinctions remain, Jew, Gentile, male, female, but divisions are erased in Jesus' name, it's either going to do two things. They'll despise us, or they'll be attracted to what's here because they see what we delight in, right? What belongs to Jesus, we say, belongs to us. He was both despised, will be despised. He was both delighted in, oh, so we might be delighted in when we welcome others in. Amen? Oh, let us, our love, be so focused on Christ that our love of self would decrease and our love for God would increase and love for others would increase as well. But more on that next week. Paul has something to say about that. Thank you.